0: hi everybody welcome back to the chaubert show I'm chaubert as everybody knows uh, with mike afari my next guest thanks mike it was great to actually run into you at this new office space i'm at shack 15 in the ferry building in san francisco and, and I, I had to grab you and say hey I got this podcast. You're like, let's make this happen. Let's do it. Great to see you. I'm excited to to be here. Yeah. And so who is Mike Gafari and uh, you know, quick background about yourself right now? Sure. Yeah. So
1: I'm from Cupertino, California is where I grew up my formative years. And then I did undergrad as computer science, studied at University of Southern California there, actually did a double major in political science as well. And I got started young on startups. Since I'm from Cupertino, I think it's here in the water. And so I was in college from 98 to 2002 and around 1999 2000 actually even as early as 90, 98 I started working at software companies I worked at one in Palo Alto in the wow. computer aided engineering area I worked at an eBay competitor down in Southern California Collector's Universe I think they're cool. still around I was trying to take a run at eBay and that was a startup wow. I got to taste of like that early dot com startup craze and then I even did my own startup in college with some co-founders who are still good friends of mine today so I got I got the whole gamut of the early tech experience and then the market imploded. So I've seen two of these downturns, the yes. dot-com crash and the 2008. And so I said, okay, I put my head down. We decided to not go forward with the startup. We were profitable actually, didn't raise VC, still small and just kind of shut it down and took out the cash we'd put in. And then I decided to go to grad school was my next step after that. Where'd you go to grad school and what'd you study? So I went to Harvard University, studied uh, JD and MBA. So I did a law degree in MBA, which is... kind of sometimes a degree of like confused people, right? Because you're going, (laughs) I was computer science and this, law. But I think when I was a kid, it was like, oh, I want to be a lawyer when I grow up. It's kind of my immigrant parents kind of coached me down that path a little bit. And it seems interesting. I was good at debate and logic, but I also really loved math and computer science and business. There were all these (laughs) other things I loved too. And law didn't fully tap into all of those. So MBA was kind of a way for me to to get out of that single track. And I instantly could tell I fell in love with that side of, my education and business. And I'd already worked at multiple startups and started one before too. So I quickly realized like I was more interested in that path.
0: You missed one, you had the engineer, lawyer, you forgot the doctor's part. Yeah, 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 that's true, checks all the boxes. But like the JD, just quickly, the JD MBA, like how long does that take? Because law school usually is three years. MBA is typically two. Two years. Yeah. So you combine
1: it into four. You basically do like first full year of law, first full year of business and you sprinkle on the elect, the next year of business onto the last two years of law school. Got it. Okay. So you That's take a very heavy load those last two years. Okay. Wow. And did you live in Boston for this? Lived in Boston for four years. I had a great time out there. I was nice. very happy to come back. I had never lived outside of California before in my life, only visited and traveled. So it was really nice to come back to California full-time. The weather out here, a lot of things. It's, I'm personally very biased towards California. Yeah, really
0: yeah, like yeah. It. And then are you from... Were you born in Cupertino, or
1: I was born in Santa Monica. Okay, and then I mentioned my parents immigrated. So my parents are from Iran. They came here before the Iranian Revolution in 1979. Yeah, they came as college students, met here, you know, had me. Were thinking about going back, and then actually ended up just staying here because of the revolution. Wow, so there's
0: a, there's a lot of similarities. We're, my parents came here for college, they met at LSU.
1: My parents met at USC. Oh, Yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. And then they decided, like, should they go to Florida and and have a family, or should they go to California? Thankfully, they came yeah. to CBC. California, was born in San Francisco. Yeah, interesting parallels there. And then uh, when you came back from Harvard, did you get into the startup world? Did you get into, you know, like a job, like actually... Consulting? Do you get into like actual tech? Like, what is yeah. the kind of the play there? Because you actually now have like an like education. Program. Yeah, I
1: had a bunch of different things I had done at this point. I think I had like seven different internships and mini jobs, startups, things I had done prior to business school. And so now I came back and I got really interested in venture capital at that point. And so the only firm that had the word venture capital anywhere in their name that recruited on campus was this firm, Summit Partners, which is a great firm. Is great training. It did get later and later stage, the growth equity, kind of private equity okay. while I was there. So I joined Summit Partners in 2006, a over 15 years ago, as my first job out of business school. But I pretty quickly realized that, hey, you know what? I want to do earlier stage venture capital. And I think to be a great early stage VC, I want to get more startup experience. I want to actually start a venture back company, which I had done a startup, but we didn't raise venture financing. Interesting. And I want to go build some more companies, just see how it's done. So I did that for the next 10 years after Summit, you know, started and built companies.
0: Oh, OK. Wow. And Summit, were you in Boston? You said you came back out. It's a, a start. And
1: that firm started in Boston, Palo Alto, and I was at Palo Alto office. OK,
0: well, that yeah. helps. Um, yeah, yeah. And then you said you got into like, what was your first startup you started?
1: So the first startup after Summit was Stitcher. I co-founded it. And I think oh, that's wow. around the time you and I met. Yeah, We yeah. might have pitched you uh, Plug and play. Yeah, Stitcher when you were an investor.
0: Speaking of Stitcher, I got to get my podcast yeah. on Stitcher. Yeah,
1: <laughs> you should get your podcast. Yeah, yeah. Because you like a name
0: brand of uh, totally of Stitcher yeah. is
1: the first dedicated podcast app. You know, like third party. There was the Apple podcast app that they had. And then we had, and we were actually before the iPhone we even started. And it was just perfect timing because the iPhone came out right when we were founding the company. Caught lightning in a bottle. But actually, we were a little too early for the true podcast wave. And so the company sold for not that much originally. It just sold again to Sirius Satellite Radio, like a bigger outcome. Awesome. But it took about years, but that was a lot of fun. I learned a ton. That was like the most optimistic, idealistic time in some ways for Startup Land, 2007, 2008. Yeah. Even as the macro economy melted down, but it wasn't a tech leg meltdown like last time. Correct. So we actually thought tech can help save it, bring the economy back, which... It kind of did over the next decade after that. It did. Oh. So, yeah, so, it had
0: its ups and downs. So, my friends and I, we talk about, like, I've been very fortunate to live through that here in San yeah. Francisco. The, I call it the town that turned into a city in the early yeah. 2010s. And yeah, like, it was the golden era. Of sure. Tech. Yeah. And I felt like it was a lot more open. Everybody wanted to help each other out. So, there was not as much, like, you know, like I, I expect something in return. It's just like, sure. It was less
1: transactional. Like,
0: yeah, it was fluid. Yeah. It was open. Yeah, it's transactional. Exactly. Yeah. So... Do you see, I guess, like maybe a question I have here, and this is a bit of a pivot, you know, you were living at that time in Silicon Valley and tech, you lived through the next phase, which was the golden era of 2010s. And now we're in the 2020s. And obviously, this is a post-COVID world. How have you seen tech evolve?
1: Yeah, it's interesting. Tech's gone through all these cycles. So I think... I mean,
0: it's your MBA.
1: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, um. So there was the dot com kind of rise. And so a lot of founders these days were just little kids at that time. You know, even I was like a teenager when that was all getting started. And everyone got so excited and there were eyeballs and it was a lot of smoke and mirrors. But there was some real value of companies that got started around that time. Amazon and Google came kind of shortly thereafter. So the real value was created with a lot of a lot of noise to find the signal. In. But then it all crashed. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, people might not remember, but there were words like dot bomb and dot yeah. bus and the crash. And tech was a dirty word. When I showed up at, you know, this business school 2000, campus, 2000,
0: 2001. 2001, 2002, yeah. it all right.
1: fell apart. But yeah. I, like I showed up at business school in 2003 okay. and tech was literally a dirty word. I think there were like three or four of us who were computer science majors from Silicon Valley who wanted like Go back to San Francisco. Everyone else just wanted to work at a hedge fund and be rich, or do some old industry, something like not tech. Tech was not cool at all. Yeah, it's 20, very different. I can
0: imagine it was a whole. different
1: be, It was a wasteland for tech, and yeah. one of those people who wanted to come back to Silicon Valley ended up being Jeremy Stoppelman who founded Yelp. Oh, so it kind of worked out. Like we were yeah, section so mates. Yeah, and so we we're really,
0: really time, good friends. Uh, yeah. Also in tech, starting to interrupt, Like, so everybody's talking about uh, obviously now the layoffs, and I won't. Yeah. I don't want to jump around, but like. The layoffs back then, I feel like maybe were worse than that. The people don't forget, like HP and a lot of these companies have laid off tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of people. Yeah. Even though, not to compare, like, oh, laying off people is a bad sure. thing. Um, but the bust was really bad. So, anyway, it, I- it
1: definitely felt that way. Like, to me, that time felt a lot more somber and serious. This time is really bad as well. It, is, um, yeah. it was more stark then. But, you know, I was also super early. I was coming out of college trying to get a job. And I saw like the job market seemed really rough that time. But we're also not fully through this recession yet. It's going to get worse. It kind of hit tech first. And it's going to move into other industries more real next. Estate
0: and yeah, yeah. and yeah. Commercial
1: real estate, right. you know, everyone's talking about and, and there's going to be other areas. So we'll see Fine. when the recession is behind us, how bad the full toll is. It might might be comparable, might be worse. We don't know.
0: Yeah, I know. Uh, <laughs> yeah, uh, we could come back to that, I guess, on the follow-up. So going back to the original, like Post.com bust. You're you just graduated. You're coming with Jeremy to Silicon Valley. Yeah, came at the same time. Came
1: at the same time. Well, he actually left school a year early just to get started so on Yelp. He never he Incredible. deferred and never came back. I did Summit Partners at first and Stitcher. So I did a couple things. Sure. And I remember Jeremy was trying to recruit me, and I thought, oh, well, that's Jeremy's startup. It was like at this point, it was twenty people. Like even before that, I wrote Yelp's first advertiser contract because oh I was like his only lawyer friend. <laughs> yeah. And when it was twenty people, he was trying to recruit me. I was like, "Oh, I missed the boat. It's already too late. <laughs> the company's too big. I'm not gonna. I'm gonna do my oh own my startup, God. Stitcher." But luckily, when Yelp was a couple hundred people, I got a second bite at the Apple. He said, "Hey, it's not too late. You should come and join. Do you know help us lead business development?" And then that actually was really appealing, and so I got to join that after Stitcher. And then spend seven years as an executive at Yelp, which was a great time.
0: Wow, seven years! I remember you we were there. We we met. We had this huge neon sign Yelp <laughs> at, the, at the old building in yeah. the cafeteria. But like, so you had an interesting BD role, business development, corporate development, which led into another role. Let's start with the business development and corporate development. Like, what does that entail in a company yeah. like Yelp at yeah. that point? publicly traded or no
1: no i joined yelp when it was still like uh, quite a bit pre-ipo yeah, cool. and then you saw the whole ipo process so that was fun to see a startup go all the way through yeah and so business development is something also i did at stitcher i also did this company trial pay and did it at yelp so i spent a good decade doing bd and corp dev you know m&a yeah, yeah and first of all business development can mean a lot of things i remember hearing that word in college and not even knowing like what it can mean you know experimenting with new revenue lines it can mean analyzing the business something now it's been bifurcated where people who used to be called business development some of them are called business operations or business analytics now and it's kind of like what former you know i did a summer at boston consulting group bcg what former bcg or McKinsey, bain consultants do when they get into a startup is they go analyze things run models and spreadsheets but they're not accountants but what a lot of bd has turned into now and where you can add a lot of value and what i did for most of it is partnerships strategic partnerships and trying to say like how and with yelp it's like hey the holy grail for us really probably most impactful one i did was apple like how does Mm -hmm. yelp get super integrated and tight with apple they're our natural partner google is competing with both of us quite a bit like how do we go and, and really get married with apple and so i spent years on that and it was really fruitful i made some deep friendships we had you know yelp appears all throughout iOS, the iPhone, iPad, you know, Mac, Spotlight Search, Maps, Siri Search. Anytime you're searching for a restaurant, local business, plumber, dentist, all this stuff, Yelp content will be front and center in the Apple experience. And it's a win-win for both companies. And we did that 200 times over with, you know, Amazon, Facebook, lots of, you know, just uh, dozens and dozens of companies that we did various forms of partnerships. And with. these
0: partnerships are native, I know from like the app experience, but like you also, and from my background at Pebble, we used to connect to your API. Yeah. So like API, you want to explain a little bit like what that because you're definitely more of the strategic partnership for sure. these kind of server-server.
1: But I managed the Yelp API program as well, and I really liberalized it. When I showed up at Yelp, there was an API. It was extremely locked down and limited. And I basically came to the rest of the exec team, made a proposal like. Let's 100x the number of API calls a day we give people. Literally, you know, we were only offering 1% of that before. And let's blow it out because I thought, hey, all kinds of developers like Pebble, all these people that it's not scalable for people on my tiny BD team that started out as one and grew to five and then 10. We can't send someone to every one of these thousands of companies to custom negotiate a contract. But let's get to API. They can grow. They can use our content, put Yelp out there, create cool things we never thought of. And if something gets big... We can always then do a deeper partnership like Apple later.
0: Yeah, it makes it like very unique. And like if you're a product person, product BD, these type of partnerships, you can use a product. So what we did at Pebble to give examples to everybody out there is we had like the first smartwatch and how do you connect something where you're typically used to like your phone, which has a decent real estate to your laptop, which is a huge real estate to look at. And like the photos and things we did it just like, okay, I'm hungry. We use the geolocation connected to your phone and then just flick the wrist. And find a restaurant. Restaurants. Yeah, so, so cool. it was like a very simple example of that.
1: And I love the Pebble watch. I, years after the Apple watch was doing well, Pebble wasn't even a startup anymore. You and the founder were long gone. I was still using a Pebble watch that nice. was still working for many, many years. And eventually at one point, I stopped being able to update and I asked the founder, he wasn't able to
0: like get it to... I know, work, yeah. I think it was like at least five to six, seven years. I was able to uh, keep going with yeah. it. I love that
1: watch. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Now that uh, software is actually embedded in like now at Google, basically. Yeah. Oh, um, cool. Which is cool. Yeah. Yeah. And, very cool. Uh, yeah. Like, I, and I, my dream was like, oh, if Pebble could be like the IoT of things, like the Intel in a, like, you know, like Intel, the Intel, Intel platform, uh, yeah. which everyone was like, the commercials going up. It's like, is that PC? No, it's just a chip. Yeah. Like, that was the concept. I was like, oh, that would have been interesting for all yeah. devices. Yeah. So that was my strategic BD role at Pebble's at Pebble. like, fine, cool, unique experience. That's
1: great. And yeah. that's and that shows you any great BD relationship has mutual value like that. Like for us, it was great to showcase our content. For Pebble, it was, you know you could show off what Pebble
0: could and do. And there's also sales. Like I'm in ad tech now. And it's yeah. just pure, like I call myself BizDev. It's really partnerships to sales. I mean, like, can I find out who could display our ads yeah, uh, on the supply side and on the buy side, it's like growth.
1: Uh, yeah, and so- BD people can go pioneer these new channels for you. One way I, I like to explain to people is a lot of similarities between BD and sales. But I explain to people is like, look, a heuristic is if your BD person or salesperson is going out and renegotiating the contract from the ground up, they're rewriting like a, a contract. They're they're not just filling in the blanks. That's probably BD, not sales. Like your salespeople shouldn't be rewriting it every time. That's yes. actually dangerous. Right. Like who knows what they're agreeing to? They're not lawyers. Right. But the BD people, they need to reinvent it. They have to think really strategically, get custom sign off from legal and maybe the CEO. And that's how you kind of tell the difference. Custom contract creation. So sometimes something new, the BD is innovating. If it looks good, it's a new program. You put it on rails and that translates into something you can sell in a cookie cutter, Mm -hmm. fill in the blanks and then scale it up, hire a bunch of salespeople. That's a great
0: example. Yeah. Yeah. That's why BD
1: teams stay small and sales teams can blow out and get really big and drive. You know more, the majority of revenue.
0: Yeah, that's great. And then you like going back to like the Yelp example of BD and corporate dev. Did you also do any acquisitions while you're there?
1: Yeah. So I helped kick off M and A function. It, you know, was our first head of corporate development Very VP cool. of corp dev. And then we started doing our first acquisitions. The first one was our European competitor Quip. And then we did some product tuck-ins like SeatMe that became Yelp Reservations and competed with OpenTable. And we did a handful of others. And the largest one we did at the time still might be one of the largest, largest was Eat24, which is an online food delivery startup that was really cool. And they started as an API and business development partner on our transaction platform that we put out that let them kind of do food delivery orders within the Yelp app.
0: Great idea. Yeah.
1: So we did that as like a third party arm's length you know, partnership. But we saw they were our most successful transaction partner. Mm. And we were their number one source of new users was through this platform. So I told them, hey, I never want to wake up one day and read the Wall Street Journal. You sold the company. <sighs> like, call me. I'm the MA a guy yeah. and I'm your partnership guy. And sure enough, one day they said, hey, there's been some interest. Someone might want to buy us. Do you want to talk? And we said, absolutely. And we had been thinking about making an acquisition there anyway. Acquired the company and the founders. The timing um, was
0: really good, by the way, because at this time, all of the kind of shared economy picked up. Everything was uh, heating yeah, up like quite like a bit. All the food stuff, Instacart yeah. was probably in parallel to start yeah. YC, post totally. YC, yeah,
1: Doordash, everyone. Correct. So it was great timing, also super competitive yes. timing. So it made it very difficult, but we grew quite a bit. I think we, I think you almost five x revenue
0: acquisition. Did you or no? What like, do you mean? Like, were you the first to actually acquire? e24 one of the companies before they went any of
1: them yeah that's public. true we were probably the first and i mean grubhub went public before we acquired okay. e24 okay, yeah, yeah, but we might have been the first company to go make a food delivery acquisition like yeah, that, that and then sense. there was a bunch of consolidation kind of later and we grew it i'd probably like 5x or so in two years if uh-huh. i'm just thinking maybe a little bit less than that so it grew really fast but frankly like doordash right. and uber from yeah. standing start then grew even faster than us in the long run because we didn't have our own delivery fleet of drivers. So we had 30% EBITDA margins, super profitable model like wow. the original Grubhub model, but we couldn't do every single restaurant. And consumers mm-hmm. came to expect that, that you could do any restaurant they want, like Postmates, Storedash, and Uber. Yeah, yeah. So that's why we eventually then created a monster BD deal with Grubhub and sold the company to Grubhub to be able to get all that. And so that's a whole nother kind of story. Yeah. But that, it was a lot of, it was a fun run for me to do the E24 uh, acquisition. And then they asked me to stay on and actually be CEO of the E24 subsidiary of Yelp for two years after wow. that position.
0: So how does that, you're basically running, you're running an entire team and in PL inside of bigger core.
1: That's right. So I had like sales, yeah. engineering, product, marketing, all those functions. But then things like finance and legal was a shared Yelp person Got it. who would be dedicated, would actually come sit with us, but they would be kind of more on the Yelp team. Others would be more independent. So we had a full exec team. It was like running a startup within Yelp. At first, it was a little over 100, 150 people. And then we grew to 500 people. And it was quite an experience to see that phase of growth. I'd never run a company of that size.
0: Yeah, that's incredible. Uh, what stage and peak were you there at Yelp and in total as well? So like you grew, obviously, 24. Yeah, so 500, time, 500, feet, 500 whatever. people, like, whatever. Well,
1: think that. Yelp might have got to around like three or 4,000 people, oh, you know, from yeah. a couple hundred. So I saw, and when I wrote that first advertiser contract Yelp before I was an employee, but I, just as a contractor, <laughs> yeah. I guess, At that time, I think Yelp might have been like 10 people, you know. So I saw like the very early days from Germany was just getting off the ground. So So, it's really cool to see that full journey.
0: Yeah, definitely. Especially a company that went public. And they were still in San Francisco. Speaking of like the, again, the golden era, of San Francisco, the 2010s. Because when you started Stitcher, I was at Plug and Play. Silicon Valley was still the place to be. That University Avenue, that was like Facebook was there. And, and then and companies were the just
1: starting to start in San Francisco. Yeah, like yeah. I'm
0: on a City Life. A city yeah, and Yelp. And I think obviously the pre- previous mayor, the uh, late Ed, Ed Lee. Lee, he gave it a good tax break for like companies like Yelp and, yeah. and Twitter's and yeah. Dropboxes of the world. They stayed yeah. Airbnb. So it's been incredible. Like I call it Mini Manhattan in some yeah. Way specifically. Yeah, and, and you guys were part of it. You're yeah, one of the pioneers of that.
1: Yeah, and not only that, Yelp was, was really part of that because it was telling you where to go in the city and how to explore yeah, it. Exactly
0: so it was right. the app you'd use to navigate your city. Yeah, that's, I mean, the fact that you guys were able to do this competitively against Google was yeah. like very difficult to do. It was very
1: difficult. Yeah. And yeah. I remember one at
0: one point, I think they blocked you guys from being search results because you're a search engine. Yeah. So, like, you're a lawyer. How does this. They would yeah. just
1: push us down lower and lower. <laughs> and stupid. did obviously that's been like a big fight. Yeah. And it's tough when it shows you it's really hard to build a business when you're dependent on another platform for whatever reason and in Yelp's case for a lot of our traffic and we thought the web you know that, that was kind of a, a religious thing like you could or a sacred thing that, that search results would be honored and you if you were the best result you'd show up on top but then Google kept cramming and cramming it down and so obviously Google has their side to that yeah. and Yelp has their side but it, it made it hard
0: yeah I, I mean I'm, I'm always fascinated with this because at the end of the day you guys also benefit from each other this tech has this funny co in our industry. It's too. a lot you know, of that. Like, Yeah. So like, even though you're <laughs> pushing and pulling the search results, I feel like they had to have you because the more people search for Yelp and restaurants, the more they were even to Google too. At yeah, the same time. totally using
1: search in general. And there were some estimates back then. I haven't seen the latest as iPhones and mobile phones skyrocketed that like up to 40, 50% of searches had some local component to them. Wow. Whether you're searching for a local sure. business or restaurant or maybe like directions or navigation or a map or, or even weather, and so like, if that much of search was local on mobile phones, not yeah. on desktop, that meant it's like really, really important. And that's why I think it was really after the advent of the iPhone that Google started really paying attention to local too, because they realized this
0: stuff is all tied together. Mm-hmm. Okay, that makes a lot of sense. And obviously, with the likes of like companies like Foursquare, yep, and obviously Yelp and others, they they really. Double down on the the geo totally. and the, uh, information. I can imagine they're all like, "Oh, we can sell more ads." Yeah. Uh, Solo Mo was this
1: big. I don't know if you remember. There was a social Sol- local mobile. Oh my god! There was a Solo Mo like uh, like ten years <laughs> uh, conference. Yeah, it was the big thing. Yeah.
0: Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Good memory. Uh, yeah. Okay, so you've now you've talked about corporate. When did you kind of go into? Uh, I think you at some points decided to go back into venture. Back into venture. To social capital. Social capital. Two
1: thousand seventeen with Chamath, who's also then became the SPAC king later and all kinds of, he's got the podcast now. Yeah, yeah. So it was really interesting to learn from him and that firm and, and social capital had a really unique approach, which I really enjoyed. So I did that first, but then social capital, as you know was SPACs, like was getting later and later stages, similar to the summit thing, was getting in all these other asset classes. And I was really like, hey Chamath, I came to do early stage venture. I wanted to do early stage venture. Social capital is focusing on that less now. And so I had a couple of friends who had co-founded Canvas Ventures. And so they put Rebecca Lin and Paul Mm Shao, who I'd known for over a decade each. Rebecca, from when she was a VC and we originally pitched Stitcher actually back in the day. And Paul from shortly after I joined Yelp, and he's a marketplace investor. And so I joined up with them and there was another partner I got to know, Gary Little. And they said, we co-founded this cool firm. Do you want to kind of join us in fund two? They had finished fund one. They're in fund two. They said, do you want to come on board? I was excited and joined kind of halfway through fund two and the rest is history. Now it's been four years now at Canvas. I'm wow. on five boards there and have another handful of investments as well, where I don't have a board seat and having a good time there.
0: What's the elevator pitch for canvas for everybody who, who does it? Yeah. So
1: canvas it. we're series a and B focused firm. We're investing out of a $350 million fund three and have around $800 million in total assets under management we write these series a and b lead checks of 5 to 15 million dollars have three main focus areas around marketplaces fintech and digital health but we really do you know all kinds of software data and ai even before it was you know the hype around it that cuts across all three of those areas there is related like i'm on the board of a company offerfit.ai that's really around like consumer transaction enablement came out of some of our marketplace work but it's not really directly a marketplace you know, I'm also on the board of fly homes in the prop tech and kind of consumer real estate tech area. New breaks is another company on-demand auto repair in the marketplace area, rescue, which is like back-end restaurant maintenance and software and marketplace. So all kinds of different companies that we're involved with.
0: So sometimes like there's this cliche that's like sometimes the, the not the sexy stuff makes the money. It yeah, seems like,
1: uh, especially like now platform. when there's not a new platform.
0: Correct. Yeah, Yeah, because it's not the consumer iPhone product right. that we used to uh, for many years, Yeah. But it's like a back-end for restaurant back information. Back-end for it's, restaurants, it's, yeah. It's, it's probably like, hey, let's cut down the cost for restaurants. Totally. More, more important.
1: Restaurants in North America spend like $900 billion on back-of-house and costs. Everyone's innovated front-of-house, but no one's doing the back-of-house stuff. Wow. Who's keeping the lights on, the HVAC, the plumbing and maintenance. And you need software to manage that. You need a marketplace of vendors. You need, you know, and they go after these larger chains. One thing I learned from Yelp is like going after one restaurant at a time is actually tough on the sales model. You yes. can do it, you have to build this army. So, selling into chains and franchises, hmm. it's actually you can get like high revenue accounts. It's a really cool business model.
0: That's very interesting. Yeah. So, like, what, how do you get connected to these founders? I mean, you, there's a lot yeah. of VCs now, unlike where we used to go back in the day, yeah. right? There are a lot of, um, a lot
1: of VCs, a lot of competition. Yeah. Um. So, I'm fortunate. A, Having had now coming up on like a 20 year career in Silicon Valley, I just, I know lots of people, so there's a lot of deal flow that way, but I can't just sit there and wait for the phone to ring or wait for my email to light up or text. I am reaching out to people proactively all the time. You know, we're cold calling, cold emailing. Yeah. We're getting out there with high hustle factor. That's a big part of my summit training. And frankly, I've been cold calling all my life. Like I'm very big on That's hustle factor. For VC or cold oh, calling yeah. still. You uh, got to be out there. You got to be on the pavement. So what does that mean? You're actually in.
0: calling people, yeah. just catching up with them. Yeah. You're actually calling people. and you're not texting. Anybody.
1: Yeah, I don't typically cold call founders. With founders, it might be cold emailing, but we, we use the term cold calling, but yeah, that would yeah. be like emailing it. Hey, let's get to know each other. But I will cold call. I'll call people at like, let's say someone has their phone number in the footer of an email, or if I have their, I'll pick up the phone and call them. And it'll surprise people. Sometimes it's a generational thing where people are like, whoa, you didn't oh, yeah, like, exactly. text me or email me <laughs> first. But like honestly, sometimes like if an email thread's going more than two or three back and forth, or if something's ambiguous by text, sometimes like calling someone's actually the best way to get to the bottom of it, resolve it, or make a deal. Like You'll almost never close a deal, whether it's in BD or yes. VC investment. If you don't just pick up the phone and call someone, yeah. it's really important. And it's an art and a skill,
0: the art of conversation and picking up the phone is something that's been lost a little bit these days. It has. So like you started this co-calling back at uh, Summit, you mentioned, and you're doing it now. Yeah. And a lot lot of the founders, and there is a lot of social awkwardness with people because they're used to just looking at a device. Looking at their
1: screen and and not talking to a human. Yeah, yeah, Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah, yeah. But like, do you have any examples of the fun, like you were talking about Off-Fit, Fly Homes, any of these that actually were? It's yeah, like, I mean, you're
1: comfortable f- <laughs> Yeah, yeah, Fly Homes was, you know, that's a good example that it wasn't a cold call, but like they didn't come pitch me. They didn't say like, hey, they didn't try to get an intro. I was mapping out the space. I thought they had a really interesting model. Interesting. I'd heard that's an interesting company. And I got Alex Rampel from Andreessen Horowitz, who was a former colleague of mine. He was the co-founder of TrialPay where I had done BD. Yeah, yeah. And I said, that's Alex, like great. get me in front of this company. And he was able to like get me in front of the CEO while he was on a plane. And I picked up the phone and called. (laughs) And it's exactly like I I called the founder and I was like, hey, let's have a chat. And it all started with a phone call actually. Wow. Tushar Garg, he's a great guy. We're really good friends now. And I think he appreciated that I was like out there reaching out to him, speaking to him. And we kind of hit it off through conversations. You know, not just by email and not just by pitch decks and things
0: like that. That's it. I mean, with your background and then obviously you're like you're reached out, you're genuinely looking at a you know a company in that space. So I think they would be definitely. Yeah, that's you know, good that they did. Yeah. But what are you looking at now? Maybe for like, hey, sure. Preemptively, yeah. like those listening in, if you're looking yeah, for near uh, financing, maybe yeah. he'll come to you. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like a coming to you. So,
1: you know, series A and B typically. And I always, you know, first love is really around marketplaces. I've spent a decade you know, in and out yeah, of marketplaces right. have made a lot of marketplaces investments and, you know, Yelp, if, depending how you look at it, one grand marketplace and partnering and, and building lots of marketplaces. Oh, like, What's like a good
0: marketplace you like now? Yeah. So
1: new, new, I mean, niche
0: or verticals yeah. per se. So
1: rescue, I was saying like that one's an interesting one in, in the restaurant kind of back end. I think the overlooked, you know, I just looked at industrial marketplace. I think B2B marketplaces, there's a lot of opportunity now. A lot of the consumer mm-hmm. marketplace opportunities have been picked over. I, I am an investor in new breaks in this kind of on-demand auto repair marketplace, which I think is really interesting. But someone's got to have a novel approach, something around software. You know, everyone's wondering, where does AI intersect with marketplaces? Everyone's wondering where AI intersects with everything. So that's a question. Right. I'll be totally frank. Like I have not seen as many interesting marketplaces in the last 12 months or so. Part of that is we're post-platform. So the question is, like, is AI... People were looking at Web3 marketplaces before. There weren't that much, you know, big that stuck. There were a few, there was OpenSea and Dapper Labs, some of this stuff, but not that much now. And so the question is, will there be some new platform AI or otherwise that drives that marketplace growth? Definitely looking a lot at AI and big data. There's no, I'm on board, our firm, you know, my partner Rebecca had one of the first exits in AI with figure eight and early in the AI space. And so we're early there and continue to look there. We're still looking and I look at a lot of, you know, FinTech and digital health, i'm um, just looking and, and there is on the, on the healthcare side there's marketplaces there that could be interesting
0: so from a figure eight early days ai to now what is like a, di- a big differentiator and maybe where are the parallels is that more enterprise versus like a chat gpt because everybody's trying everything for that product, yeah which
1: is- so chat gpt i put in the generative ai bucket and that's you know everyone's very familiar with that now yeah creating lots of whether it's creative content or content for work or writing essays, whatever it is, people are, you know, on images and sounds. Everyone's kind of super fascinated with that. And there's a lot of hype there. And we'll look at that. I think there's a lot of opportunity around that. We have a company, Case Text, that's doing a lot of interesting things in the legal tech area with generative AI. But then there's this whole bucket that I'm really excited about on applied AI or analytical AI. And that's like how you take AI and apply it to solve business problems you know, this company OfferFit is kind of you know in that bucket where I'm on the board of OfferFit.ai. But there's a lot of others, you know, solving business problems by pattern matching using AI or reinforced learning where you're not necessarily generative, but you're using it for other purposes. That's kind of interesting. There's also AI infrastructure, just the picks and the shovel. Oh, yeah, true. And you know, tool things to build up to help fuel all these companies. You know, Chamath called that kind of like the, you know, Levi's blue jeans selling in during the gold rush? How do you, the picks and shovels? Good,
0: pers- good perspective. I think it's yeah. similar to, uh, I forgot the gentleman's name, the founder of Signal,
1: the chat yep. app. He
0: basically said the same thing about like, there's no major infrastructure. You want to be on the blockchain level. There's nothing there. Yeah. But uh, on, as far as AI, it's good. Good parallel. Yeah, so that,
1: that's yeah. another area. Yeah. And there's going to be things we don't predict, but it does seem to be a big computing revolution that's worth watching really closely.
0: What do you think is going to happen in the next... I guess year to few years with this space. Do you think it's overly hype? Is it actually going to have like real products that will, I mean, your venture fund has had a success there. Yeah. That's probably an interesting perspective. I
1: don't think it's overhyped. I think the current real economic opportunity for now is going to be more on the B2B side. There's a lot of excitement around some of these consumer apps like character.ai that raised, I don't know if it was a billion dollar in the month or valuation. And so some of the consumer stuff is getting a lot of excitement but I don't know that the business model is there on the consumer side just yet. I think the B2B business models are actually pretty obvious. You can save people a lot of money. Mm. You know, OfferFit, for example, um, helps people with marketing automation. And people can create like $10 million lift for their company wow. by optimizing their, their marketing flows on B2C companies. And then they can afford to pay OfferFit a six-figure, you know, SaaS annual license. And so that that we see lots of examples of those. So I think there's going to be, in the one, two-year... Time horizon, actually, really big companies on the B2B side. Cool. And then the question is how they productize this as a consumer kind of thing. OpenAI is, is trying to now mm. with ChatGPT plugin apps. And does it become a super app like WhatsApp? You know, is that? But I don't know that we've had people are looking for that iPhone moment. Yeah. I and they're hoping that the ChatGPT plugin one was. I don't know if it is yet or not. I think that's the open question. I feel
0: like it's like uh, early days of search, even before Google existed. Yeah. Like that feeling. And you used to go, like, ah, do I go to Netscape? Do I go to yeah. like, uh I don't know, like even Yahoo, yeah, or, Alta, or, Vista. yeah Alta Vista, Alta <laughs> Vista, more so Jim Barney. <laughs> yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, old school, ago. yeah. So it has that feeling yeah. um, and, and excitement, and I guess we have like a few more minutes more to pick your brain on a few things. One of the things we brought up earlier was like naive optimism you were talking about in tech, yeah. like you've you've gone, you're like me but now. We're in a, our third decade of tech. It's crazy to say this, you know, like it was the two thousands, twenty tens, and now the twenty twenties. Where do you see it now? Like and by the is, way, tech, there are many, many
1: decades obviously before that. But yeah, just yeah. you just for folks like you and me at this phase of the career who think of it from just a worth calling up Yeah,
0: like for the web, yeah. If you're talking about this. truly yeah. and, and then like obviously mobile, like now mobile generation yeah. only kids in college. Uh, yeah, high, you know, high school college I grew yeah. up with this device. Mobile so, native, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then, and now it's a different level with obviously AI. we were just talking about yeah. this. And I, the flip side is I think since you know, the pandemic, the lockdowns, you know, I'm not talking politically more on a social level and business level. A lot of companies realize, holy crap, even in small businesses, you have to have some sort of tech connection. Yeah, right. Like a good example is a restaurant survived. They had to at that point, if they were like, stubborn not to work with the delivery companies, they probably did at that point just to survive. So like, yeah, I'm just curious about your thought process, you know, in tech. Yeah. tech for me. Okay, one last thing. Yeah. The podcast is one of those things people ask all the time why I started it. Is tech has given me the tools and my, you know, the opportunity to live my dream. So this is like, hey, I want to tell these people's story because they're they're living the tech dream. There's a sure. lot, of, in my opinion, there's still optimism, even with like all the, you know, all the other stuff that tech has done. Yeah. Um, because it becomes so mainstream. Sure, yeah. absolutely. So, a couple of things. One is, in that 2008,
1: 2009, like in the Great Recession timeframe, it was actually a magical time for tech, even though it was super hard to raise funding rounds in Series A. They were so, But when you did raise some money or when you did have a positive milestone, it was so celebrated. Everyone was high-fiving. I would go find you. We'd throw a party. We'd say everything. And we thought we could do no wrong. It was, you know, you'd go. There were, If you
0: made TechCrunch, oh, my God. Yeah, it was so good. You're featured yeah, on TechCrunch,
1: yeah, yeah. and it's so cool. And you go to Mike Harrington's house, and he'd throw a big party, and <laughs> exactly. everyone high-five. We were all genuinely cheering for each other because it wasn't that competitive. It was all really early. And tech could be seen as maybe a cure to a bunch of society's problems. A to fuel economic growth, which it was job growth, economic growth, you know, for the for the whole you know macro economy. But also, it was you know politically, we even thought like tech could do no wrong. It was making people's lives. Facebook was making more connected to people, you know, and you were more Correct. socially connected for disconnected. Yelp connected to great local businesses, helped the little guy, small business. Twitter was like helping democracy and revolutions at first, right? We thought like, wow, look at there was an Arab Spring and there were yes. these revolutions. But then at some point tech woke up and became so big. And you know, some of the revolutions, by the way, backfired and went wrong. And just, you know, bad things started happening. And we realized, like, okay, tech is not immune. It's not like we can do no wrong. Correct. And so we went from this super optimistic time to now, certainly in the media, and even for some of us, it affects me too, to getting like more pessimistic and like, oh, well, mm-hmm. is tech really a force for good? But I like to think, and you and I were talking about this too, yeah, that tech can still be a force for good. I like to bring back some of this techno optimism. It's not a naive techno optimism of 2008. Oh, we can do no wrong. I think that we can do no wrong can get you in trouble. We've seen that because you can do wrong. And if you don't have guardrails, if you don't have content moderation, if you don't think about the impact, the implications of what you're building, bad things can happen. But if you are thoughtful and if you try and think, for example, I wrote a, an article and have invested now in multiple companies around the team, the theme of how how can tech help rebuild the middle class in the United States? Oh, As the middle class is eroding, especially headed into this massive recession, yeah. and I think we're going to see increased unemployment. You know, and so yeah. companies like New Breaks that help train auto tech, so you can be, you know, do auto repair and have a real craft and skill. And we're, so you're asked about what kind of companies we're looking for. Anyone who's helping with upskilling, not just upskilling like Lambda School help you be a coder. How about upskilling for blue collar America and for vocational skills? To help you well, be like an that. electrician, which we're gonna have a massive shortage, especially all these jobs that the Inflation Reduction Act have created and AI, who's gonna be doing, you know, electricians specializing the EVs, you know, who's yeah. training the next plumbers, carpenters, auto tech, there's all these different areas, right? That and even as robotics come to take play and some of the other stuff around AI, like there's technicians and other like high skill, but not necessarily needing like a graduate degree type or even a four-year degree. Who's doing that matching? Who's creating those jobs? Who are startups around that marketplace is there? So tech can help with a lot of this and help some of society's problems, but we have to be intentional and thoughtful about it.
0: Yeah, I like it. I like where your head's at with that because like a lot of times, you know, when I kind of give parallels to tell people, you know, back post-World War II is the manufacturing job was like the yeah. job to have. And I think if like, at least coding specifically, engineering mm-hmm. coding wise, computer science, if that's kind of decentralized globally, but like if I think it could have been a really good thing to, to really in the middle of America change the warehouses from the factories to a coding school mm-hmm. from early age that mm-hmm. could be an interesting angle but you're talking more blue collar which i love i'm saying uh, these
1: are, even if you have cuz the challenge the is like not everyone wants to be a software developer or a coder correct and so you have to give people not everyone wants to go to four year university so giving people these vocational paths and honoring it the way countries in Europe do and like Japan right. there's other countries where they have this and they have apprenticeships and trades and trade school but tech really has not addressed this. And so I went through the new breaks investment, Rescue on the restaurant side is doing this maintenance. We have another company called Pipe Dreams that does this for plumbers. Like we have we're one of the only VC firms that has multiple investments here. Wow, and cool. I want to see more of tech really stepping in and helping to fuel this innovation.
0: That's awesome. this has been a great conversation. I mean it's flew by we we're talking about the time before we're getting on yeah. the cast, right? And I guess I always ask the last question is like, what are you really excited, optimistic about this year and beyond, like yeah. uh, and the Mike Afari thing and how to connect to you. Is yeah,
1: a couple things. One on how to connect to me, I'll repeat it again later. But just Twitter is one of the best ways. I'm yeah. at new Mike, so not the old Mike, but yeah, new, Mike new Mike on
0: Twitter. I like it. Um, the TV
1: show. Yeah, there you go. I should do it. <laughs> yeah. If I do a podcast one day, hey, uh, I'll have you on. And so return the favor. And what I'm excited about, so. One, I would say definitely this rebuilding the middle class theme. So anyone working in a, it's amazing how few startups I find there. So if you're doing anything around vocational training, upskilling, rebuilding the middle class, some other way, a marketplace there, I'm excited about that. Two, obviously AI. You know, I do think there's a lot of positives to come. People are thinking about it responsibly and thinking about that. I don't know. There's talk right now about this putting a pause for six months on AI. I don't really? know if it's yeah, yeah. You have there's a bunch of signatories. Um, Elon Musk oh, and others saying, like, let's pause scary, development yeah, for, for six that. months. But mm-hmm. the counter arguments, which I agree, is like, hey, is China going to pause? Is, you know, the Pentagon going to pause? Or they get, exactly. Like, innovation on it is going to keep going. So it, it's not going to stop. And so it's hard to just say, let's pause just like the private tech sector. But I think instead, just being responsible, you know, from the get go and figuring out how we can make AI innovation a net helpful to society I think is the right way to do it. Maybe build some great principles into those companies. You know, once upon a time, Google had the "Don't be evil" motto, which I think was genius. They've since removed it, unfortunately. Mm. But thinking about adding some of that into companies is interesting. There's a debate around that. I know Naval thinks you know you can't have alignment for AI, and he has a point there. But that's a, another conversation for another day. How to do that?
0: And maybe another episode with New Mike. Yeah. yeah. So you can follow me at New Mike. You awesome.
1: can can DM me there if, if you have interesting things and. It's always a pleasure.
0: Yeah, pleasure having you. my Yeah. Uh, Mike Afari, thanks for being part of the Shaver Show. And thanks, everybody, for listening in.
1: Thank you.